So uh, Eli Finkel is a, a, a psychologist and marriage scholar at Northwestern University <clears throat> who wrote an article for the New York Times about six years ago where he identified uh, what he believes are three distinct phases uh, that Americans have gone through as they think about family life and marriage. Phase number one happened between like the 1800s to the 1850s in what he referred to as institutional marriage. Uh, this is when you got married for purposes of protection, uh, production, uh, or, or, or just mere survival. If there was an emotional connection between you and your spouse, great, but it certainly wasn't necessary. The second phase that he describes is what he calls companionate marriage. This goes from about the late 1800s to about 1960, when people thought of marriage as the primary way in which they get uh, connection and intimacy and being loved and loving someone else. But Finkel argues that since that time, we have been in what he describes as self-expressive marriage. And here's what he says. He says, Americans now look to marriage increasingly for self-discovery, self-esteem, and personal growth. That ought to sound familiar to you because I've talked to you in the past about this dominant philosophy of our day that we call expressive individualism, which basically says that we are, our purpose in life is to discover our unique identity and then insist that all those around us respect that identity. Okay, so you don't have to be a social scientist to realize that when Jesus stands up and starts talking about the potentially valid reasons why someone might end this foundational relationship of marriage, <laughs> it's going to look insane to the culture around us. So much so you would be okay to ask the question, why would Jesus even bother in that regard? Well, I want to submit to you that he does so because Jesus understands that there is no vision of the good life that you can have without a vision for, for how to protect individuals from their own pervasive and corrosive effects of sin. Jesus believes that we are our own worst enemies when it comes to our marriages. And so therefore he locks it around with this amazing standard. What is that standard? Well, I think I can sum it up very briefly from the two passages that Steve just read for us. Basically, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day believed, they were quoting from a passage in Deuteronomy 24.1, hoping to establish a policy whereby a husband could freely, at his own pleasure, divorce his wife simply by providing her an attested document that verified as much. And Jesus simply responds by saying that any husband who's that irresponsible has done nothing but make himself and any future partner he might have an adulterer. The only situation with which divorce and remarriage were possible in Jesus' mind was with the breaking of the seventh commandment, which is something that leads to serious sexual sin. That kind of divorce, while it's never desirable, Jesus says is permissible, and it keeps the offended party from ever having to sort of feel the stigma of adultery. And of course, though we're not looking necessarily at the Apostle Paul, Paul will pick this back up again in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because you had a situation there in, in the early church where lots of Christians found themselves married to non-Christians. And the first thing Paul says is, look, if that person is willing to stay in the marriage, then don't divorce. He says, secondly, though, but if they are, then um, if they're not, it's okay. You are unbound, as he says. And then by extension, Christians would begin to understand this passage to pertain to someone who persisted in abuse 
and threats without repentance. And then were deemed by the leaders of a church to be treated as if they were an unbeliever, regardless of their protest to the contrary. Okay, so there you have it. (laughs) That's Jesus' standard. And of course, there's way more there than we can pack into about 28 minutes. But I can tell you that this, by way of introduction, the one thing I want you to keep in mind is Jesus' continued passion for justice. Divorce in Jesus' mind, and especially in the minds of the prophets that we read this morning, is a justice issue. And it's really important that you frame it that way. And here's the reason why. Because I think for most of us, whenever we've been used to coming to church and hearing ministers kind of rail against the the dangers of divorce, we talk about it in terms of how needful it is to protect the marital union. How dare we be so permissive, so flippant in our thinking about the marriage covenant. So stay away from divorce. And honestly, I have no problem with any of that. That's a good thing. All of our marriages need protection from our own complacency and laziness or, or even meanness for that matter. But here's the thing. That's not the whole story on divorce because there's an equal amount of attention and emphasis that needs to be given to false visions of marriage that ignore the injustice going on right under their noses that Jesus exposes and then allows for divorce. For instance, that little passage there in verse 31 where they're talking about something happened with Moses and this whole certificate of divorce thing. What happened was, is the certificate was given by Moses to prevent a man from leaving his spouse, going away for a while, and then coming back and claiming his property again. We've got tons of ancient Near Eastern sources that showed that that's exactly how husbands viewed their wives, as if they were chattel. And Jesus was like, no, marriage is not something that you can simply walk in and out of. So here's the deal. Have some mercy on me this morning because invariably when you talk about this, you've got at least two different people in a room. On the one hand, there may be some of you who are living right now with the temptation of divorce. But it may be that that divorce is coming, the longing for that divorce is coming from sinful and selfish places. And we need to be warned not to. But on the other hand, there's some of those, some of us who have been through the pain of divorce and still live with this latent sense of of, of sinfulness that feels like it needs repenting of. On that score, you need clarity and confidence that despite that residue of pain and guilt, that God actually has hope for the hearts of the victims of divorce. So please, have some mercy while we talk through this as we go through it in three simple points. The first question I want to ask is, when do we need to stay? The second is, when are we allowed to leave? And then thirdly, how not to get divorced? Just some thoughts of wisdom at the end. All right, let's take that first one, when we need to stay, which is kind of a funny way to phrase that point. (laughs) Because in Jesus' view, we stay as long as me or my spouse is alive. It's a continued thing. In Mark 10, 69, Jesus says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, look, think about Jesus' rationale here. No other relationship do we have in life that is referred to as being one flesh. My children are never described as being one flesh with me. Why? Because children leave. They get married themselves. They start new homes. But my spouse by virtue of the promises that I made at my wedding 
and by the sexual union that we've had until that time, it means that we are one flesh, which means that divorce is, all, divorce is always an amputation, spiritually speaking, which for those who have been through it, would be like, yeah, no kidding. But what Jesus says is, is what God has joined together, let no man separate. But I really don't want to take that question on this first point head on. Why would Jesus tell us to remain in a marriage that we're not happy in? Seriously, why would he do that? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons, at least four. The first one is this, is because conflict is, almost, is so often personality-driven. You know, d- d- divorces of convenience are driven often, in my experience, by couples who are convinced that there's just something fundamentally incompatible between you and me. That is, I've come to realize that there's a finality about just the way you are, and so it just begins to feel hopeless. But understand something, that Christian maturity is itself learning to live with my personality for the purpose of seeing how it can serve someone else. My personality is there to meet the needs of others. (laughs) And where my personality hurts others, I learn to curb and restrain and destroy and defeat my personality. In other words, as we're entertaining the idea of divorce in our minds, there's a whole host of questions that have to be asked about what it means to change. Can people change? What does God have for us as we grow? Is that possible in your present worldview? Second thing to think about is, is because bad expectations about marriage, they can be rethought. Now, oftentimes for troubled marriages, the constant refrain you hear is like, well, you know, I just, I got into it and realized this is just not what I signed up for. But here's the deal. I've seen many marriages that end up being crushed, not because someone thought too highly or thought too little of marriage, but that they thought too highly of marriage. That is, you get to a certain point where you look at marriage as if it's going to be the ultimate thing that finally fulfills me and finally makes me happy. Well, no marriage sustains that kind of weight. And what happens is people get crushed by it and they want out. Look, marriage is just like any other good gift that God gives us. It has to be guarded against the idolatry that we might have, that our hearts might make out of it. Marriage is not the central growth agent for a Christian. The church is that, but that's another sermon for another time. The third reason why we should stay in is because life circumstances change. A number of months ago, Dr. John Cox talked to us in our marriage conference about how often child-rearing, especially preschool-age children, represents the lowest ebb of marital happiness. But here's the thing. As hard as it is to see in the midst of child-rearing, the thing that that child may need the most is simply to stay together. That's the thing. I know divorcing couples will often sort of manage their own guilt by telling themselves, well, I would rather my child grow up in a home that had real love than for one where there's all this conflict. But here's the problem. The statistics are against you in that thinking. And you need to pick up a copy of Judith Wallerstein's landmark study, The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce where she begins to talk to people about this this desire of saying, life would be better for my children. And all of the surveys show that almost none of the adult children of that kind of situation thought that was a desirable end. Almost none. The fourth reason we need to stay in is because Christianity teaches that forgiveness is possible. There is a capacity that the gospel should be giving to us where we can not retaliate when we are sinned against. 
Granted, forgiveness is a learned behavior and takes a lot of reflection and meditation for Jesus to lead us into it. But those offenses can be overcome. That's at the center of the Christian message. I realize it's hard to believe when we look out through our future and we just can't imagine it being with the person we're being with that we're with right now. now look, here's the thing. I, I, I've been through enough in my limited experience of, of, of marriage and divorces to say this. Many, many, by the way, couples that I counseled and officiated their wedding through to know that they're really, this is my saying I always say, there is no feeling of being trapped like being trapped in a marriage that you don't want to be in anymore. But I want to say that if you're in that moment, in that state, there should be a big time out that you call more than anything else in the world to work through whatever impediments that are keeping you from rejoicing in your marriage now because it's likely that they're overcomable. They just are. The problem comes, though, when we try to face those challenges in isolation. You know, we're just going to work on some things together. I very rarely have seen people be able to sort of work through and be objective judges of their own problems in their marriage while they're completely isolated from any other community. It's the body that helps lead us in to the insight about ourselves. More on that in just a second. And look, one small caveat before I leave this point. I know for a lot of times we want for our community and our church to come alongside and rescue us in the midst of our difficult marriage. But please understand something. That solution will always be somewhat limited. Because nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors. When all of a sudden the accusations fly and the he said, she said starts, the community can only do so much. But that does not mean that there is wonderful benefit in knowing that there's someone else in my life that, that knows that we're struggling. And, and it would help, it would help, I think, for someone else to be aware that you're struggling before the first phone call they get is in the car on the way to the lawyer's office. So when we need to stay is sort of accompanied uh, by, I think, some good reasons, Jesus says. But secondly, he talks about when we are allowed to leave. Now look, here I'm nervous because you spend a lot of time as religious types to sort of rail on this whole question of why people should stay, why people should stay. That invariably there are people who have been sinned against in their marriage and who don't realize that Jesus, yes, he does allow for divorce in some cases. And to press the point, I want to go a little further by saying divorce can actually be seen as a blessing for those for whom their marriage has become physically detrimental. So the question is, what insight does Jesus have to give us about this particular situation? Well, I think there's at least four of these little points as well. The first one, this allowed to divorce does not mean has to divorce. In other words, Jesus is not mandating divorce in the Bible for those when one partner has had a sexual relationship with someone else. Look, y'all, there's plenty of examples throughout all of the church of people who have put the pieces together even after these horrific experiences of betrayal. The second insight Jesus gives to us, though, is that adultery kills the covenant. You know, adultery kills this covenant bond that we promised at our weddings and consummated in our sexual experience with our spouses. And when someone unites themselves to someone else sexually, they have destroyed the covenant. It's very much like the way the covenant of marriage dissolves at someone's death. Someone's death dissolves your marriage so that you're free to marry another. Hence, the person who is the offended person is able to remarry because that covenant was killed by the other person. Third insight Jesus gives 
Being unequally yoked is a bit complicated. Now, I'm relying on that passage in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul goes into this, this situation in Corinth where people were finding themselves married to unbelieving spouses. What should they do? Well, Paul says, look, if they're willing to stay in the relationship, stay with them. And you want to know why? Because they and the rest of your family will benefit from your sanctification. There are blessings that God can give through you because of the insight that the gospel is giving to you. Your family would have those otherwise. And therefore, you are... But of course, if your spouse is not willing to stay in the marriage, then you're free to remarry. The fourth and final insight that we get from Scripture is that spouses who decisively demonstrate that they are not Christians can also create grounds for divorce. Okay, look, full disclosure, I'm in agreement with the scholars who say that both Paul and Jesus' comments taken together suggest that someone can kill the covenant through an ongoing pattern of unrepentance for abusive and dangerous behavior. They're unable to be lived with. The children are in danger. Now, mind you, they're not in danger from the fact that your spouse is annoying, but that they're actually in physical danger. And honestly, I can't say this important enough how vital it is that decisions like this need to be made with close counselors or maybe even church elders. A period of of separation might be appropriate so that intentions can be figured out. But there should never be a time where someone is forced to stay in a place that is physically dangerous for them. And please know, just in the interest of of giving it straight to you as a newsflash, if someone pulls a weapon on you or if someone strikes you to hit you, you're going to have a very hard time convincing me that the spouse isn't fully within their rights to vacate that place and go and seek help. So look, again, I don't think I can stress this enough. We have to be aware as God's people when we talk about divorce that it is very easy for those who have been through the awful experience to feel like they're walking around with a scarlet D on their chest, the divorcee. But I'm trying to be a little bit provocative when I say, but no, that actually could be a blessing to relieve tortured spouses who are trying to live within the aftermath of betrayal. Does that make it easy? Absolutely never. But I think it's what calms at least the conscience while the divorcee hopes that God might have better things in store for him. Okay, so that's a little bit on when we should stay and when we're allowed to leave. But thirdly, how not to get divorced? Look, I was in campus ministry for 25 years, which means I was able to officiate like 120 weddings or so. And and five or six of those weddings ended in divorce. And I've seen the pain that it causes, even for the people that had biblical justification to do so. But I have noticed some common themes running throughout that might be helpful to those of you that are in difficult marriages right now. We'll see. The first one is this. We need to, first of all, beware of what I call pre-invasion techniques. I've never seen an affair that happened sort of without preparation. And more times than not, that preparation began with one party demonizing their spouse in the hearing of someone who was not their spouse and of the opposite sex. Look, if you're in a position where you're ready to give vent to all of the annoyances that your spouse embodies in your life, those comments belong to trusted friends who will hold you accountable, to pastors or maybe to a counselor. They do not belong in the ears of someone you work with who is of the opposite sex. And if that happens, my red lights ought to be going off, that maybe there's something that needs to be headed off at the past. Secondly, 
We have to discard the right person myth. J.D. Greer says that you have to get it out of your head that there is a right person out there for me. And this person I married is just not my soulmate. And I missed the one. The truth is, because of what Jesus says about our sin nature, guess what? We all married the wrong person. All of us. Because we married a sinner. And God's purpose in marriage is not to restore some missing part of your soul. Your marriage is there to teach you to be like him. And you know what he did? He married an annoying sinner like us. Thirdly, we have to count the cost. I do think that if I'm in a stage of life where I'm nurturing a fantasy of divorce, we can get very myopic about those kind of things. And all we can see is this overwhelming desire to escape. But I do think it's worth us thinking through our community and the cost on our community, not the least of which are our children. I remember sitting with a, with, a, with, a, with a father many years ago who got really teary at his daughter's wedding because his daughter had asked her stepdad to walk her down the aisle at her wedding. And he said, you know, it's safe to say that I, I really wasn't thinking about that when I left my family so many years ago. Count the cost. See in the future in some way. Four, we need to get in and stay in community. Look, we make habits all the time that we believe are going to be a blessing to us. We brush our teeth, right? We clean our homes. We, we, we check in with our aging parents. Doesn't it make sense then that we should develop some kind of habit that involves me surrounding myself with godly friends and maybe even sometimes voluntarily placing myself underneath their scrutiny? It's none of their business. What if it was? What if they have the ability to see something in my marriage that I could never see otherwise? But my, I think my community knows me better than I know myself. And by the way, college students, for you in dating relationships, I used to have a little rule that I was always tell people that I wasn't willing to do a wedding that had the universal disapproval of all your closest friends. Because guess what? Your friends, no one knows him like I know him. Les, if you could see how she talks to me, you would know. No, I promise you, the version from the outside is probably much truer than the version that I filtered in my head of how healthy we are as a relationship. Community is medicine in that regard. Number five, we've got to get some counseling. And that's not just for the people who have problems. It's for the people that are actually not going through a hard time. Honestly, I've talked to many therapists who say that by the time a couple makes it into their office, They've already worked through all the guilt that they might feel about leaving their spouse. Usually they're showing up in the office just to check off some boxes and they finally get permission to leave. But look, marriages that last, they, we don't assume that they're okay just because we're in a season where there's low conflict. A lot of times the question is, are we growing together? Are we moving and progressing together? Number six, and finally I'll finish with this. I think we stay in marriage because we do it for Jesus' sake. And doesn't that sound like a religious thing to say? <laughs> and even a guilt trip for some of us, right? But look, there's at least two things Jesus gives us. The first one, he's already given us in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. Jesus assumes that if I can put myself in the posture of all those Beatitudes, I'm ready to deal with difficult marriages. I was able to dig up a quote by John Chrysostom, the ancient church father, who said this. He says, For he that is meek and a peacemaker and poor in spirit and merciful, how shall he cast out his wife or husband? He that is used to reconcile others, how shall he be at variance with her that is his own? 
Now the question comes, how do I step up into those attributes that the Beatitudes describe for me? Now that's a good question. But the second resource Jesus gives us, I think we get in the Old Testament, especially in books like the book of Hosea. You know, the Old Testament was prof, prophet was commanded by God to go and marry a prostitute and continue to be faithful to her after time and time again of, being, of her being unfaithful. And the moral of the story is not hard to figure out. Jesus is someone who knowingly and voluntarily married an unfaithful person, which is you and me. And is it possible that at the root of some of my marriage conflict and at some of my despairing over the future of it is a sense that that kind of love is impossible? That there's actually shame that's motivating me in the midst of this fear? And if that's the case, if that was not the case, and Jesus loved me with an everlasting love, could that create something of a confidence to be able to move through? Hey, the confidence goes both ways. Yes, it goes for those people for whom divorce has touched you and you were the offended party, but you still feel guilty somehow. Jesus wants to relieve you from that, I think. But you know, you may find yourself here this morning on the other side of the fence. Maybe you were the one that was unfaithful. Maybe you were the one who caused it. And you know what? I recognize that there's a lot of complications in the face of that. What do I do? I don't know is my answer to that question. But I can tell you this. Humility is a great place to start. <laughs> Repentance is a great place to start as God begins to put pieces back together with the knowledge that what he holds out for me is a love to faithless people. Even people who messed up their own lives through difficult marriages. I don't know, maybe we are living in times of self-expressive marriage or something. <laughs> But my hope is that, that we're growing a community here among this church that if we've got something to express, it's to express that there is a spiritual safety that kept us of being afraid to love an unlovable person or kept us from being ashamed of having gotten out of a marriage that was racked by betrayal. That's the, that's the holdout. That's the beauty of how Jesus comes and bonds himself to his people. And if it means nothing else, it just means there's hope for the struggling. That's good news. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you guide us into and through this? Father, there's no way to even talk about this without me feeling the shame of my own failures in my own marriage. Father, there's no one for whom your words do not touch. And we feel the sense of being laid bare before the searching nature of your word that challenges us, that, that moves us, that grates against us sometimes. Father, we pray that we would be a body that would love one another through good times and bad times in our marriage because the good life doesn't exist until we protect them from the tyranny and the injustice that goes underneath our own, our own roofs. So would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you grant us the grace to bond together as your people in that regard? And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. 